Thank you. Thank you both for reading for us. Uh, well, let me pray as we come to this next section of Jesus' passion narrative as he walks towards the cross. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we have your words here for us to read tonight and help us again as we keep looking to Jesus now in these last moments of his life, the last hours of his life and what he's done for us. We pray that we might rightly understand all that Jesus has achieved for your glory and for our good. And we pray, Lord, that we might grasp just how awesome that is, that you, our God, would do that for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, there are those moments in each of our lives where we either confess or deny. Uh, You can probably think of some examples right now. You know, in that very moment, you have to decide, do I confess the truth? Uh, An accusation has come before you. Do I say and confess the truth or do I deny it? And uh, there's one example that really sticks in my mind. And I had on my script here, I had this written. I said, I really hope... My parents aren't listening in. I don't think I've confessed this one before. And uh, I didn't know this, but my mum actually decided to come to church this morning at 9am. So there I was confessing this little thing. And uh, it's all good. I'm not grounded. I'm allowed out. But uh, anyway, so my mother heard this this morning. Uh, But in year five, as uh, young boys do, I was kicking around the kitchen one of these blow-up globes. I don't know if you've ever seen those before. They're supposed to be educational. They've got all the the countries and stuff on this blow-up globe thing. Uh, I wasn't interested in the globe bit. I wasn't interested in the kicking it bit. And uh, in kicking this ball as hard as I could around the kitchen, I hit this this clay figurine. It was about kind of this big. And uh, it was this clay figurine of this Portuguese thing called a rooster of Barcelos. Uh, it's, a, it's a Portuguese symbol. And uh, in kicking this ball around, I hit it and it smashed all over the ground, hundreds of little pieces on the kitchen floor at home. But the problem was my grandparents had been visiting from Portugal. Uh, it was the first time they'd come to visit us from Portugal. And they brought this special gift for my parents because they're Portuguese. And uh, it was very precious to them and very precious for them giving it to us. And so when my mum walked in and saw this thing smashed all over the floor, she was devastated. And she knew my grandparents would be really offended by what I'd done. And so she asked me, uh, knowing rightly what her son was like, she asked me straight away, what did you do? And uh, it was my moment. You know, do I confess? Or do I deny? And uh, I said, nothing. You know, the rooster, it just fell. I closed the door of the cupboard and it fell over and smashed all over the floor. I even had the gall to say to my mother, why would you even put it on the cupboard, mum? That was silly. Of course it was going to fall over. Uh, I've got vivid memories, literally vivid memories of my mum gluing this thing back together piece by piece uh, on the kitchen table at home just so those grandparents wouldn't get offended. Now, I'm sure we've all got thoughts and memories like that, uh, some you know, childhood memories like that that are, that are a bit of a laugh down the track. But then there are other much more hurtful and more serious examples, uh, like denying your affiliation with someone. You know, someone uh, gets uh, kind of made fun of in a group and you're worried that if you're associated with them, it might impact negatively upon you. Uh, it might you know, wreck your reputation at work or at school or you've got social concerns. You know, someone says, oh, such and such, they're a bit weird. I just don't get them. And uh, instead of you saying, well, actually, they're my good friend, you say nothing. Or, or you, you, know, you smirk and go, yeah, yeah, they are a bit weird, aren't they? And of course, there are those, real, uh, those very real examples for us as Christians of either we confess or deny. 
Uh, and more and more in our modern world, we're put in this situation where we really must either confess or deny Jesus. You know, the, the world around us is no longer indifferent about Jesus. Uh, our world is very anti-Jesus in what he teaches. And so the things that Christians believe now offends the world. And again, I'm sure we can think of situations where this has happened. We're in a little group and people are mocking God's words or making fun of you know, the truths that we believe about Jesus our Lord. And what do we do in that moment when you're in that little group? Do we confess Christ as our Lord who teaches such things? Uh, do we say, uh, yes, I believe that, I follow Jesus? Or do we stay silent? Or worse, do we, do we deny the ways of our Lord? No, no, I don't believe that. No, no, that's not me. That's not the Jesus that, that I like to follow. But that's all to get a bit of ahead of ourselves for the moment because in our section today, we've got two situations where either one confesses or denies God. And we're going to look at each of those scenes in turn. And just in case you haven't been with us the last uh, few weeks, what we're looking up now leading up to Easter is these these last hours of Jesus' life, what they call the passion narrative. And if you remember last week, if you were here, we saw that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Remember the kiss, the kiss of death, as it gets called sometimes. And Jesus has now been arrested, so the mob have taken him away. Uh, and if you look at the end of verse 56 from last week, just have a look. At the end of 56 from last week, all the disciples, that is all of Jesus' followers, deserted Jesus and ran away. And so as we come to this section, Jesus is all alone. Everyone's abandoned him. So pick it up with me from verse 57 now. Matthew 26, verse 57. And this is point one on your outlines. If you've got your outline there, that will be helpful. Jesus confesses he is the Christ. Verse 57. So those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened, had gathered... Verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. And so as we jump back into this event, back into this scene, we, we need to picture a court, you know, like a court case sort of court. And uh, that's what the Sanhedrin is. It's like a court and Caiaphas, he's the high priest, he's kind of like the judge of the court, if you think of a, of a judge, he presides over the court. And the first thing we see as Jesus is brought before this, this court, this Sanhedrin, is that the whole thing is a sham. This is a corrupt court, it's a, it's a kangaroo court. We even saw this last week in the way that Jesus was arrested. Do you remember how they did it? It was at night. It was in private. It was away from the public eye. Because why? Well, they knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. They knew he was innocent. So they, they secretly arrested him. And we see the same thing here again with this court. Because what does this court want? It's actually very clear what they want. The court doesn't want justice. Verse 59, the court wants to put Jesus to death. And so what they do is they bring in uh, all sorts of different testimonies, all sorts of different people to come in and, and, and say things about Jesus. They want to hear something that will condemn Jesus, so they invite all the people in. You know, what did Jesus say in public? Tell us what he said. What did you see him do? Tell us what he did, hoping that someone would share something that would give him a chance to condemn Jesus. But verse 60, which is no surprise, 
they can't find anything, which is no surprise because he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And that simple point is part of what we need to learn from this part of Matthew's gospel. You see, Jesus is innocent. The court's got nothing against him, nothing that they could legitimately bring against him. He deserves nothing of what they're about to do to him. But if you look at the rest of verse 60, the rest of verse 60, finally two came forward, two different people came forward and they stated, this man, this Jesus said, I can demolish God's sanctuary, that's God's temple, and rebuild it in three days. And what's interesting about that testimony is that Jesus did say something along those lines. Uh, Matthew doesn't record it for us here, but John's gospel does, if you remember John's gospel. Uh, Though Jesus didn't quite say, I can demolish the temple. If you know John's gospel, he said, you demolish the temple, then I will rebuild it. And so it's a distortion of what Jesus actually said uh, uh, that they're bringing to this court. But regardless, for the high priest, that's enough. That's good enough to condemn him. And if you remember the Old Testament law, if you're a Jew, to condemn a person, you need two witnesses. That was the Old Testament law. At least two. One person's not enough. You need at least two. And so here, Caiaphas, the high priest, is judge. He's got two witnesses who've come forward and said that Jesus said, I will destroy the temple. So, you know, tick that box. Good. We can condemn him on that. And to speak against the temple of God... Well, that's blasphemy for a Jewish person. To to speak against the temple is like speaking against God himself. Uh, It's like, you know, Will Smith during the week, if you saw that, you know, to speak against Will Smith's wife, well, that's to speak against Will Smith and there'll be consequences. Uh, Don't speak against his wife, not a good thing. But verse 32, have a look then, verse 32. So what does the high priest do now? Well, he stood up and he said to Jesus, in light of this accusation against him, don't you have an answer? to what these men are testifying against you. But verse 63, Jesus kept silent. And remember this from last week. Remember Isaiah 53? We saw it last week, that the prophecy about Jesus 700 years earlier, it said, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. And Jesus here was silent And what we must remember is that Jesus had every right to open his mouth. He had every right to call out the the corruption of this court. He had every right to, to call out the injustice of his arrest, but he didn't. He'd already resolved in his mind that he was willing to go to his death. He'd already resolved and wrestled with that idea of his death and what that would mean, like we saw last week, that as he went to his death, he would drink that cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew it was all a part of God's plan, and so he kept silent. But Caiaphas, what he does here is he forces Jesus to speak. He, he calls this oath, he calls him under oath before God to speak. Uh, and so he says, if you have a look, he says to Jesus, Tell us, under oath before God, tell us if you are the Messiah. Tell us if you are the Son of God. And you see, this is Jesus' moment. Because will he confess? Or will he deny? Because if Jesus denies, then really the the whole thing's over. If Jesus denies that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, if Jesus says, I'm not him, then nobody cares about Jesus anymore. The crowds won't follow him anymore because he said, I'm not that guy. 
And then the, the Jewish powers of the day, they wouldn't care anymore because Jesus has no power. No one's following him now. And so you see, Jesus could have denied at that point. They might even have let him go if he denied. But we already know that Jesus' will is to do the will of his Father. And so verse 64, Jesus says, you have said it. He confesses. And up to this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, he's never confessed that he is the Messiah publicly. He has to his disciples. He has to a couple of individuals, but never publicly has he said, I am that Messiah. But just in case Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin isn't clear on what Jesus means by Messiah, because this is part of the problem in the gospel here. They, they were waiting for this military king Messiah, if you remember that. But that's not uh, the real Messiah. That's not who Jesus came to be. And so what Jesus does is he quotes from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it's what was read out for us before. And Jesus quotes from Jan, uh, Daniel chapter 7 saying, this was written about me. So you have a look from verse 64. So remember, this is Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus is quoting here. He says, but I tell you, in the future, or if you look at your footnote uh, in your Bibles, uh, another way you could translate that is from now on. So, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the words there from Daniel 7. And at first glance, we might not quite get what Jesus means by that. Why does he say this? What does it mean? Why is it, why is it important? But be in no doubt that Caiaphas and the others who were in the Sanhedrin there knew exactly what Jesus was saying by quoting Daniel 7. So look, how they, look at how they react in verse 65. It's quite the commotion. See, verse 65, the high priest, he, he tore his robe at, at the words of Jesus. It's like a, you know, a religious toddler tanty. If you've seen a toddler, have a bit of a tanty. It's kind of like that, but for a religious leader. Uh, then what does he do? Well, the high priest, he then declares he's blasphemed. You know, why bother with any more witnesses? We don't need anybody else to come and say anything about Jesus. We've heard it. You've heard the blasphemy. And what does the rest of the court say? Well, verse 66, they agree. They say he deserves death. They've made up their mind. And so they understood very well what Jesus was saying when he spoke in those words of Daniel 7. And here is now Daniel 7 again up on the screen to refresh our memories. And as we read it, as I read it out, just remember Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. That's me. Jesus is the son of man. I am the son of man. So up on the screen, the prophet Daniel had written this. He had prophesied this. He said, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and he was escorted before him. He, the son of man, was given authority to rule and glory and the kingdom. Why? So that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so as Jesus quotes in the words of Daniel 7 to that, to that court, He's saying to the court, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God. And if you're to rightly understand what it means for me to be Messiah and Son of God, then you need to realize that I am the Son of Man of Daniel 7. And he says to the court by saying that, 
all authority and glory and every nation and every language has been given to me. To me, Jesus. That's my confession. And if you put yourself in the shoes of those chief priests in the court and the high priest himself and all those in that court, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment and imagine Jesus saying that to them. See, they're thinking the gall of Jesus to say that about himself. How dare he? You know, who does he think he is? How dare he give himself, in effect, equal power and equal authority that's due to God alone? Who does this man think he is? And think of the irony of the situation as well. Because there is Jesus before that authoritative court, whom in that day they had the power to kill Jesus. They had the power to declare death upon Jesus. And Jesus is declaring to that court, no, 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 you don't get it. So you, the Sanhedrin, you, the court, you don't get it. All authority has been given to me. Every people, every nation, every language will serve me. You, the court, will serve me. I will judge you, is what Jesus is saying. And so at that, the courts had enough. Uh, You know, Caiaphas, again, he has his toddler tanty. Uh, the, The court declares death upon Jesus. And then look at how they treat him. Look at verse 67. Then they spit in his face and they beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, come on, you know, who hit you? Tell us if you're really the Messiah. You see, as we read this, as we hear this, please remember that is our Lord. That is our Lord and he did that for us. We should read this and it should break our hearts. If ever we want to talk of an injustice, here it is. The only innocent man in all of history, and how's he treated like scum? The one who actually came to save the world, to save us, to, to die for the sins of the world. And, and what happens here? He's mocked, he's abused, and he's mocked and abused by the ones he came to save. That's an injustice. And he did it for us. And if you remember last week, at any time, Jesus could have called upon those thousands of angels. Remember that from last week? So I can call the thousands of angels to my disposal any time, and they would smite them. You see, none of this was fun for Jesus. He didn't desire to be treated like scum in that way. I think if any of us were in that situation, we had the power of the angels to call them down, we would have caved. Bring on the angels. Yeah, go slap them around, angels. You know, hit the cord around the face for a bit. They're the corrupt ones. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't. And he bore it for our salvation. And he bore it for the glory of his Father. And even though he knew it would cost him the beating and the mocking and the most barbaric forms of death, the crucifixion that he was heading towards, Jesus never shied away from the will of his Father. He never shied away by in confessing himself as the Christ, the Son of God. And praise God that he did that for us, for all our sakes. But I want to move now to the second scene in our passage, and this is point two. Peter denies Jesus to Christ. And uh, we skipped over it, but if you look back at verse 58, so uh, verse 58, Jesus was, was being brought into the presence of Caiaphas, the high priest, and into the court. But verse 58, look at Peter. See, Peter was following Jesus at a distance, you know, so he couldn't be seen. 
He was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. And as we hone in on Peter now, I want us to be fair on Peter. Uh, It's really easy for us as readers to kind of sit over Peter and think, ah, there goes Peter again. You know, he's always mouthing too quickly. You know, he's always speaking too loudly. He's always messing up. He's always too confident that Peter. And some of that's true. But Peter is an outstanding disciple of Jesus. You see, remember Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of this gospel. Jesus turns up out of nowhere, goes to Peter while he's working his full-time day job as a fisherman, and Jesus says to him, Peter, follow me. Give, rid of, give all that up and follow me. And what does Peter do? He gives up his fishing, his fishing and immediately he follows. Or remember Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus was walking on water towards the boats and the disciples were in the boats. And you remember, who had the courage to go out to Jesus on the water, to have a go at walking on water? Peter did. And sure, he got a bit worried. You remember the wind and the waves, and then he got scared and started to sink. But none of the other disciples dared give it a go. But Peter did. Or Matthew chapter 16, who is the first of the disciples to recognize and and confess Jesus as the Messiah? Who gets it that, that Jesus, you are the Messiah? I realize that. I know that now. Who is it? It's Peter. So we've got to be careful not to paint Peter unfairly as we look at his denials here. And even now in this scene, in this event, where is Peter? Do you notice where he is? He's in the courtyard of the high priest. And last week when he pulled out his sword and chopped off the slave's, high priest, uh, the slave's ear off and the, you know, the ear fell to the ground, whose ear was it that he cut off? It was the ear of the slave of the high priest. And yet Peter's bold enough to come so close to the place of the high priest. You see, Peter has been faithful. Peter has been bold. He's been an outstanding disciple. Which is what makes what happens next that much more powerful. So pick it up with me from verse 69. Verse 69. Now Peter was uh, sitting outside in the courtyard... And a servant approached him, and she said, You were with Jesus, the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. Then verse 71, another woman saw him and and told those who were there, This man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. Then verse uh, 73, You certainly are one of them. Even your, your accent gives it away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I do not know the man. So denial one, denial two, denial three. And with each one, Peter's denial becomes more and more intense. So if you look at verse 72, it's with an oath the second time. And in verse 74, the third time, it's with cursing and swearing. You know, like, I swear on my mother's grave sort of idea. But Peter would have been swearing an oath to God. You know, I swear to God that I don't know the man. And then, just like Jesus had said, immediately the rooster crowed. And verse 75, then Peter remembered Jesus' words, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And if you've ever uh, lived near a rooster before, like if a nearby neighbor has had a rooster, uh, the early morning cock crow, if it's like 5 a.m., depending what daylight savings is doing, uh, that hurts. (laughs) It's piercing, especially when it's your day off. But, but imagine the sound here for Peter. 
Just, just imagine the piercing sound for Peter when that rooster crowed. You see, it's one thing for him in the heat of the moment to deny Jesus. You know, the crowds around him and the pressure's on and the people are accusing him of being with Jesus and he's worried and, you know, what if they know I'm with him? What will they do to me? What will they think? But when that rooster crowed, well, then all of Jesus' words came flooding back to Peter. All that Jesus said about him denying his Lord and Saviour. And with the flooding back of the words came the shame and came the guilt. And did you see what Peter did next? See, he went outside and he wept bitterly. And so on the one hand, you know, we, we have Jesus in his moment of confrontation confessing, yes, I am the Christ, with all that that meant for Jesus to say, yes, I am the Christ, the, the beating, the mocking, the hitting, the, you know, the slapping, ultimately the cross. And then on the other hand, we have Peter in his moment, uh, three moments actually, and he denies Jesus to Christ with the consequence of shame and guilt. And to finish up, I want to point out three things that we learn from these two scenes, from this passage. And the first one on your outline there, the first point is, the best of followers still fail. And that's why I wanted to spend time seeing just how outstanding a disciple of Jesus Peter actually was. He was the best of followers. And yet in his humanity, he still failed. Uh, J.C. Ryle, my uh, favorite old Anglican bishop, puts it like this. It's up on the screen. He says, This teaches us plainly that the best of saints are only men, men or women, and men encompassed with infirmities. It shows us the necessity of humility. So long as we are in the body, we are in danger. The flesh is weak and the devil is active. We must never think, I cannot fall. You see, we learn here that Peter was only human. The best of the disciples, only human, like you and me, and we fail at times. And that doesn't make it okay, but we know we do. And if the best of followers like Peter can fail, then we must be aware. We must pray and watch like Jesus told his disciples last week because we must never think that we cannot fall. And so this teaches us a few things. For one, it reminds us that Jesus had to go to that cross for every single one of us. Even Peter needed the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We all do. But also, as we remember that all of us fail like this at times, it helps us to be sympathetic towards each other. You see, we shouldn't simply judge Peter at this point. Yes, he was wrong in what he did. Yes, he was a coward. Yes, he was sinful and he betrayed his Lord who, who was just about to die for him. It was wrong. But surely we can sympathize with Peter. Let, let me give you some modern day examples. Just picture that scene, uh, you know, in the, in the heat of a conversation uh, in a small group and then people start saying, you know, how stupid religion is. Or, you know, religion, it only ever causes problems. Or they start saying, how absurd is it to believe in a God? Why would you ever believe that there's such thing as a God? Or someone then makes this outlandish, outlandish statement about Jesus and says, oh, you know, Jesus and the whole church thing, the whole Christian thing, it's just about power anyway. It's not real. It's just so corrupt. They just want your money. That's all they want. You know when those conversations happen at work or at uni or at school? What do you do? How do you respond in that kind of 
scenario when the crowds are saying such things, even if it's just four or five people? Do you speak up? Do you say, well, well actually, I don't, I don't agree. I, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Jesus. Do you trust that in the moment, in that moment, that God is pleased to use you as his witness? And do you speak? And are you bold? See, I know I've failed at times. Or what about that at that uh, Christmas lunch where a relative says to you, now you don't still believe in that Jesus rubbish, do you? Have you got over that phase of being a Christian? Have you realized that it's all, you know, nothingness? Or, you know, you're out to dinner with some friends or out of the pub with some friends or whatever, and you get asked a, a point-blank question. And I don't know if you've had this happen. I've had this happen many times. Uh, you know, guys from soccer, uh, non-Christian friends when you're out, they know you're a Christian, and somehow it gets onto stuff about Christianity, and, and, and they kind of ask this in a mocking way. They say to you, they say, do you really think I'm going to hell because I don't go to church like you? Uh, or they say, do you really think I'm, I'm going to hell because, you know, my partner and I aren't married and, you know, it's okay if we just sleep around? Or they say, do you really think homosexuality is wrong? Come on, get with the program. And I bring up those examples because that is what people ask us. That that's part of the modern world that we live in. We get asked these questions from our friends who don't follow Jesus. My own father, not a, question, uh, not a Christian, asked me once if I thought he was going to hell. You see, what do you do in those moments? What do you say? You see, we must declare that what Peter does here is wrong. He, he gives in to the pressure and the, and the stresses of the crowd around him. But we also need to be sympathetic, realizing our own failures, realizing how desperately, well, we too need that forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers because we fail at times. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross for even the best of followers. But the second thing we learn is Peter's response to his failure. Did you notice what Peter does when he realizes what he, what he did, how he betrayed his Lord? He wept. He, he wept bitterly at the thought as he remembered what he just did. And that's the right response. That rooster crowed and Peter was distraught. He, he, he felt and he realized his shame and his guilt. He, he wept at his sin. You see, I worry for the Christian who when they do fail who when they do deny Jesus as their Lord by, by what they say or what they don't say or what they do or what they don't do, I worry for the Christian in that moment who then feels no remorse, who the next day doesn't even think about it again, who a week later, well, they never weep at their sin for what they've done. They never repent. And I'm not saying we literally need to weep every time we remember our sin before God. If we did, we'd flood, you know. We've had enough of that anyway. But Peter's response here, it's the right one. That is how we should respond to sin. It's despair at what he's done in failing Jesus, his Lord. You see, Christians often get called hypocrites. And the hypocrite is the one who fails Jesus, their Lord, and then feels no remorse. You know, the hypocrite is the one who doesn't actually care about the, their failures. That's the hypocrite. But the Christian, the true Christian, they humbly come before God in repentance, and like Matthew chapter 8, if you remember the sinner or Matthew chapter 8, they beat their chest and they say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And praise God that because of Jesus, God can and is willing to forgive us. And so like Peter, we should weep at our sin, 
and then confess our sin to God. But the third and final thing uh, to learn takes us back to the first scene with Jesus and that court. And I think this is actually the big take-home point. This is the big thing I think Matthew wants us to see through this section. See, what is it? It's remembering that Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. Because when we remember that, we need not fear anymore. Uh, We need not be ashamed of confessing Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Why? Why don't you need to fear or be ashamed? He's the King of the whole universe. He's King of King and Lord of Lord over all things. Just just imagine a scenario. There's your little group of uh, friends or whatever. You're at work or at uni. And, uh, you know, somebody starts saying stuff about Christians and how silly they are. You know, they start saying, you know, why would you ever bother being a Christian Uh, and and saying all sorts of things about, you know, why it's absurd and blah, blah, blah. And then they look at you, point blank. They look at you and they say, surely, come on, you're not with Jesus on that. Surely you're not with Jesus. Surely you don't believe that. And right then in that moment, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, appears right next to you in all his glory. Right there, out of nowhere. Now, what would you say if Jesus turned up as this little group was talking about how dumb Jesus was? Would you say, oh, no, no, you know, I don't, oh, no, I'm not with Jesus. No, I don't, I, I don't believe that. Of course you wouldn't say that. So with Jesus there, what would you say? You would say, yes, with every fiber of my being, I am with Jesus. With every strength of my heart and my mind, I believe and live all that Jesus says. And you would say to your friends, Meet King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus my Savior. Now, Jesus probably won't pop up like that. But, but all of what I just said is true. See, he is the king of all things. And we know this in a way that the court did not yet know. We, we know this in a way even Peter did not yet know. Because we know that Jesus died and then rose from the dead. And we know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And where does Jesus sit right now at the right hand of God as the son of man of Daniel 7? With all authority and all glory and a kingdom. And that is fact. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And that fact of who Jesus is, it emboldens us to always confess him as my lord and my saviour. So let that embolden you to speak and confess Jesus always. Amen.